This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So as we all know, mammalian skin is decorated with diverse appendages, uh, including our mammary glands and our hair follicles with their associated sebaceous glands and apocrine glands, which are um, found in hair follicles, mainly in the axilla regions in humans, and also eccrine sweat glands, which play an extremely important regulation in human thermoregulation. So the questions I'd like to address in this talk are, firstly, how did these organs evolve? And secondly, do they have a common evolutionary origin? For the most part, skin has not left us with a fossil record. And so this makes it very difficult to answer these types of evolutionary questions. The one approach to addressing these issues is to ask um, whether the development and genetics of these organs can give us some clues to their evolution. So during embryonic development, it turns out that the very early stages in the formation of mammary glands, hair follicles and sweat glands are morphologically very similar. So the mammary gland uh, develops from the ectoderm, which this is the outermost uh, layer of the embryo, and it's diagrammed here in pink, and underlying mesenchymal cells, which are shown as, as black dots. And the first sign of glandular development is a localized thickening in the ectoderm, which is called a placode, And this then buds down into the mesenchyme and induces the formation of a fat pad. After that, the mammary sprout continues to grow downwards and starts to branch and develops a lumen. If we look at hair follicle development, we find that this is also characterized firstly by the formation of a localized thickening in the ectoderm, followed by formation of a bud, And after that stage, the development of hair follicles diverges from that of mammary glands. The last organ to develop in uh, embryonic uh, life out of these three is the eccrine sweat glands, which form around birth. And these also form first through thickening of the surface ectoderm, budding into the (coughs) mesenchyme, and then further downgrowth, which in this case involves uh, curling of of a tube to form the gland and the development of the lumen. Another thing that these organs all have in common is that we know that it's extremely important that the cells of different types are able to communicate with each other. Uh, So in each case, the epithelial and mesenchymal cells engage in extensive crosstalk between these different cell types. So this crosstalk is made possible by the secretion of signaling factors from one cell that are then received by another cell and cause uh, changes in, in this receiving cell that can include changing its proliferation status uh, or its uh, fate. Two of the really important cell-cell signaling pathways that are involved at early stages of appendage development are the Wnt signaling pathway and the ectodysplasin, or EDA, signaling pathway. In each case, these involve secreted wind ligands, that, or secreted ligands that are received by a receptor. In the wind pathway, the ligand is known as wind. So this is made by another cell, and it 
floats out and then starts to interact with receptors on the receiving cell. And this causes a whole series of intracellular changes that end up with the activation of target gene expression. And these genes then can uh, cause a change in fate of the cell. Ectodysplasin signaling similarly involves a secreted ligand, in this case called EDA, and this interacts with its receptor and causes a different set of changes intracellularly, but these also result in expression of target genes. So it turns out that Wnt signaling is absolutely key for the formation of all of these different appendages. In its absence, they completely fail to form, And if you overactivate this pathway using genetic tricks in mice, we see that you get extra appendages forming. (laughs) Downstream of Wnt signaling, um, the ectodysplasin pathway is activated. And this requires Wnt in order to get started, but then takes over from Wnt in further promoting the formation of these organs. So both the similar morphology and the similar molecular pathways involved in the formation of these diverse organs suggest that they may have a common origin. If we look during evolution, our ancient ancestors, the sauropods, um, had, at least some of them, were thought to have a glandular skin. And this was um, selected for in the therapsids, um, and these, had, these um, animals lacked scales, in fact, and, and had um, completely glandular skin. And people have, have um, argued that one of the functions of this glandular skin was to provide um, moisture through skin secretions to the eggs of these creatures, which are known to have been very thin-walled and would likely have dehydrated otherwise. The development of hair has been argued to be possibly a um, specialization that could have led to, that could have aided in the delivery of glandular secretions to eggs. So the mammals that exist today fall into several classes of which the monotremes uh, still lay eggs and they they lack nipples and suckle their young via specialized hairs. And these animals include the spiny in anteaters and platypus, uh, whereas marsupials um, do have nipple prime, nipples, uh, but these um, nipple primordia actually co-form hair follicles and mammary glands during development, as I'll show you uh, in, a, in a minute. The, youth, the placental animals, which include ourselves, have developed hairless nipples, and these probably facilitate the suckling of newborns. So there's also some molecular evidence for this um, kind of a scheme. So it was thought that um, the uh, mucus-secreting surface epithelia make um, antimicrobial enzymes as an important function of these epithelia, and these include xanthine oxidoreductase and lysozyme. And as glands developed in order to more uh, effectively secrete these um, antimicrobials, and eventually forming uh, mammary glands. At at the same time as this uh, development or evolution occurred, the gene encoding lysozyme actually became uh, duplicated. And one of the copies 
um, evolved into the alpha-lactalbumin gene, and this encodes an important component of milk and is also involved in the um, uh, manufacture of lactose, another uh, important component of milk. It's also been shown that xanthine oxidoreductase has a secondary function in addition to its antimicrobial properties. It's also important in encasing fat droplets in milk and allowing their secretion. So these enzymes seem to have adopted additional functions that allow them to help in milk production. Another piece of uh, evidence that for a common origin for mammary glands and hair follicles came, as I uh, already mentioned, from um, studies of uh, marsupial mammary development. So in marsupials, the nipple develops, as I mentioned already, from a thickening in the ectoderm, and this elongates and develops two types of sprouts, a primary sprout and secondary buds, And these secondary buds go on to form mammary glands, whereas the primary sprouts sprouts develop into hair follicles with associated sebaceous glands. So this is all happening during the embryonic development of the marsupial. And at the the last stage of development, the nipple actually everts, and it retains these sebaceous glands and, of course, the mammary glands, but the hair follicles degenerate in most marsupials. Although um, uh, it is known that koala bears actually have uh, hairs still emanating from their nipples. So this common development of um, these different types of organs in the the same structure um, really provides um, support for the idea that these things may have co-evolved. So of course the numbers and locations of mammary glands have evolved to fit the litter size and feeding position. So in humans, we generally have one baby and we have two mammary glands. Um, The babies, we usually hold our babies to our chest and that's where um, the mammary glands are located. By contrast, um, pigs have very large litters with an average size of 10 and they have 12 to 14 nipples or teats. They tend to feed uh, in a lying position and their nipples are are located all along the side of their body. And cattle um, generally have a litter size of one and only four nipples or teats, and they um, feed standing up with the uh, mammary uh, teats in an inguinal position. So what are the mechanisms that may have permitted this adaptation of mammary gland numbers and locations to fit the the needs of these species? So in many, um, in many mammals, uh, the embryonic mammary glands actually form along um, a line between the fore and hind limb buds in the embryo, and this is known as the milk line or mammary line, and it gradually becomes fragmented, um, resulting in the formation of mammary buds. And this is diagrammed for a mouse embryo. We can see something very similar uh, in the rabbit Embryo, and this is a scanning electron microscopy that allows us to actually visualize this raised uh, mammary uh, ridge. And this can also be seen in human embryos. So, as I mentioned, uh, the Wnt signaling pathway plays key roles in the initiation of mammary gland development. So, it doesn't, there's no mammary development without this signal. And if we 
overactivated, you can get extra mammary glands. And we can visualize this nicely by looking at one of the Wnt ligands called Wnt10b. And here we're using a technique called in situ hybridization to look at where the Wnt10b mRNA is being made. And this is shown, this appears as a, a reddish brown uh, stain. So we can see this stains all along the milk line and is elevated in the developing mammary buds. And interestingly, in mice which lack um, a secreted inhibitor protein, which would be expected to result in um, excess uh, wind signaling, we find that these develop extra nipples and extra mammary glands. So these findings suggest that changes in the pattern of wind signaling activity could underlie the adaption of mammary gland location and number. So like the mammary gland, uh, hair and sweat gland uh, formation varies um, greatly between mammalian species, but also varies within species. So if we think about uh, humans, of course we have nice long hair on our head and very uh, short, fine hairs over the rest of our body. But within our species, that hair can um, vary greatly in its texture uh, and um, in its thickness. Our apocrine glands, as I mentioned, are mostly axial, and we have eccrine sweat glands all over our body. By contrast, um, a polar bear has... um, hair that's of rather similar length over most of its body, but this hair is specially adapted and has large air pockets that allow the uh, much better thermoregulation for the polar bear in cold conditions. It also interestingly has apocrine glands on the soles of its feet and leaves a scent trail with these, and its eccrine glands are confined to, to the soles of the feet, unlike in humans. And horses uh, apparently completely lack eccrine glands, and instead they um, sweat by a different mechanism that uh, utilizes apocrine glands, which are located all over the body of the horse. And when these are active, you get this lathering appearance that we see, uh, for instance, in racehorses. And the hair of the body is mostly, um, the hair of the horse is mostly short, but has um, specialized. Um, appearances on their tail and the mane where it's very long. So there's an incredible amount of variation here. For both hair follicles and eccrine sweat glands, the ectodysplasin signaling pathway plays very key roles um, at early stages of development. And indeed, loss of function of this pathway in humans leads to syndromes where there's really an absence of all these organs. More relevant to evolution, though, it turns out that there's a variant of the receptor for ectodysplasin, um, which is associated with increased activity of this uh, receptor. And in Asian populations, this, recept- this variant receptor is um, specifically seen in people who have thick, straight hair and increased numbers of, of eccrine uh, sweat glands. So in, um, particularly in the Li and Han populations, this variant is extremely uh, predominant. And this is illustrated here using it, um, looking at Asian populations um, and individuals who have either straight or non-straight hair. And you can see that if you have the uh, 370A variant of EDAR, you're much more likely to have straight hair, whereas individuals with non-straight hair 
have a more or less equal uh, chance of having either the A or the V variant. We can model this in uh, mice by uh, genetically replacing the, uh, the uh, V variant of the gene with an A variant. And this, in mice as well as in humans, results in the formation of thicker hair and also in an increased number of sweat glands. So see, here we're looking at the uh, foot pad of a mouse, of actually several mice, and these are stained with um, blue stain to reveal the glands. And you can see the uh, greatly increased numbers of these uh, glands in the A variant. So mutation of EDAR to a more active form may underlie a subset of human variation in hair thickness and straightness and sweat gland density. So just to summarize what I told you, um, evidence from development, genetics, and evolutionary studies suggest that mammary glands, sweat glands, and hair follicles may do may be derived from a common precursor. The function of this precursor may have been to hydrate and protect thin-walled eggs and later um, developed a nutritional functions as well. Mammary gland evolution preceded um, the uh, birth of live young. And mammary gland adaptation may have occurred in part through altered control of wind signaling, whereas variation in hair thickness and sweat gland density are associated with altered uh, ectodysplasin signaling. Now, there's an awful lot that we don't know. Um, some very uh, straightforward questions, such as what controls the formation of different types of appendages in specific regions of the body? How and why did human eccrine glands become ubiquitous over our body and intermingled with hair follicles? And very straightforward questions like why is human scalp hair longer than body hair? And of interest to many men in the audience, why do many human males lose their hair in a particular pattern? And I'm sure you can think of many additional questions um, that we um, really don't know the answers to yet and would like to. So just to reiterate that in future studies, because of the relative dearth of fossil records for mammalian skin, skin these types of developmental and molecular approaches to skin evolution can be particularly useful. And this is just my lab, uh, who contributed to some of the work that I showed you. And thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.